Value to me is this equilibrium. And, and there's always three sides in equilibrium. There's the client, there's you, and it's whoever the client is serving, which is technically their customer. Everybody has to walk away winning equally. And I think the challenge is everybody's always trying to come out for, their, for a buck. Like everyone's trying to make as much profit as they can. Welcome to the RH Podcast. We talk about business, software, and everything in between. Visit us at www.recursive.house, where we build software for large and small businesses. So this is Hugo Gatsby. He's pretty much many things in one. He's an artist, former physicist, a current consultant, and for the second time, a father. He's done many interesting things. He's managed the private art collection of the Thomas family, managed campaigns for Hilton Hotels, Toyota Motors, and the city of Vancouver. He's also a digital media professor uh, for the Visual Arts College of Design and Art in Vancouver. And he currently runs Stradia Design Labs and consults for Deloitte. I'm going to assume that's all true. Yeah. Um, I guess the only thing is physicist went to school for quantum physics, uh, never really got into physics, like became a physicist, but did get to work with NASA for a while there. So I feel like it's true, but I don't know if someone's going to do like fact checking and be like, he wasn't actually a physicist. <laughs> well, I think it might be underselling it. Once you work for NASA, they probably, you probably knew a few things, no? Yeah, no, no, no. There was, it was really, it was a really wonderful experience. Probably, I still say to this day, probably one of my favorite companies to ever work with. Um, absolutely love them. So many wonderfully nerdy and cool and creative people all in one. And it just, it always, I always felt like I had to prove why I was there. <laughs> but it was fun. It was, it was, it was so worth it. It was like, I still talk to my wife about it. I remember getting a letter from them like weeks before our wedding and I was so excited, but I couldn't tell my wife about it because it was part of like a surprise for her wedding gift. And she's like, I hate when you do these things. <laughs> <laughs> Going to uh, working at NASA as a surprise wedding gift is that's a that's an interesting way to. It's a very long story. It took about eighteen months. It was an eighteen month kind of process of working with them for something, something very small, but but wonderful. So yeah. Well, I'll start off with a very something that was interesting to me about you, which was that you were nonverbal for a bit longer than uh, sort of most kids, and and that that probably might have been. Kind of a, if nothing else, a unique experience. But I'd love to hear a little bit about that because I think it sort of permeates through how you uh, you perceive, I guess, communication and some of the things you've you've done over the few years. Yeah, that 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 I think that's actually the reason I am in the world of communication is because um, so I'm I'm on the spectrum, you know, diagnosed with autism at a very young age, um, was nonverbal, had you know speech pathologist, speech therapist, um, all throughout my kind of younger years. I think in grade four is when I had a bit of a, call it mental breakdown. I don't know if it was like, an, an, like they, they call it stimming in, in autism, but it was like stimming to the highest degree. And I was able to start talking afterwards, but I had lost a large portion of my memory of just about everything. So I understood words, I understood sentences, I understood math, I understood all these things, but I didn't know how I knew them. And then we moved to a new city and I just kind of like, restarted over my mom being a single mom you know loved her worked her worked her butt off to support for three kids was amazing but didn't have the time or focus to to focus on just one of us because she was trying to you know keep us living let alone having to deal with these things so i was kind of left to my own devices and i remember moving to the new city and the first thing i did was read a dictionary because i didn't understand how i knew words so i wanted to know what words were and i just read through the dictionary and eventually i found the word word. And I was like, oh, this is what they are. Okay. This is how I understand it. And it was kind of a choose your own adventure. And and that's kind of led my whole life into this process of, you know, being able to communicate, being able to share ideas, being able to 
figure out things I don't know and understand how to solve them. And, and that's been my, my whole career as a strategist, as a consultant, as just about everything under the sun, just, you know, finding a way. There's two things. First is what, you know, what exactly is stimming? If, if you could explain that a little for, for the audience a little bit more, because stimming is, so it's, it's essentially stimulation. So you'll notice that sometimes I might shake my hands or twitch my head, or there's some sort of like mannerism, some sort of just physical reaction to the way that something is happening. And it's very common with, with people with autism, uh, ADHD as well, um, even people with certain cues for depression and things like that. And stimming is a term that we use in autism to show that there's some sort of involuntary reaction to something. So if I have an issue with something, a lot of people will just internalize it. With autism, it's a little bit different because you might not know how to say something, but your body will physically react to something. And that's that sense of stimming or, or stimulating or overstimulating, I guess it could be. One thing that's interesting to me is, you know, this idea of, you know, expressing yourself. How did that part of your life, you know, inform that, right? Because there are different ways people are, are creative and the different reasons why they're creative. But how did this, you know, you, you literally couldn't communicate to some degree. But then how do you see the value of self-expression? Some people don't even, don't really value that at all. And some people think, some people only commit to that, right? So how did that affect you? How did, how did you see that? How, what's your value structure on that? Uh, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a story and there's a, there's, I'll, I'll go into like the, the Coles notes version of it, but basically my mom met a, met a guy, became my stepfather, was like the most influential person in my life. And he, he did everything to, he did everything for me. Like sent me to military school, sent me to France. We built a, a 1967 Mustang together before he passed away when he had a brain tumor. Like he made me understand the, the potential of myself. And when he sent me to military school, I understood what leadership was. When he sent me to France, I understood what creativity was. And, and I didn't take art or math classes a lot during school just because uh, people didn't know how to react in an art class. So I was just kind of left to my own devices and given other courses. And then math, because I was really good at it, they're like, yeah, you don't need to take it. I'd just write some tests and I'd be done. So I didn't really get into art until university. And I went to, my, went to university and found this world of art because my brother was teaching a Photoshop class and I fell in love with it because I didn't know how to communicate with imagery. I've seen museums in France for art, and I thought that this was just this majestic thing. But again, at 16, no one explained to me basic concepts of, you know, what right or wrong is, or what lying is, or, you know, what art was. I just, I just saw these things and appreciated them for what they were. And it gave me like a sense of feeling inside that I never had. And then when I went to my brother's class one day, TAing, I fell in love with Photoshop, and then my world became colorful. And that was like into my 20s where I first started to actually get into art. So yeah, it was, it was a weird relationship with creativity and me. I had an opportunity to go to fashion school in high school. But my dad was like, nope, my son's going to business school. Like I, I trained you. I trained you well enough. You're going to business school. You're not going. To, and I had a scholarship for fashion school because I, I took a class because I just needed an elective. I had I already took all my classes and graduated by the time of, but before I was in grade 12, because I moved to France, I did a bunch of extra classes. So I had this opportunity just taking a bunch of extra stuff and that was the only class available. So I just took it and I, and I loved it because it was me allowing my brain to work in different ways, which never really was thought of for someone like me. So you said that you, you had to figure out what right and wrong was. Is, is it, was that just sort of an offhand comment or was morality an idea that you had to like sort of, that was foreign to you and then you had to structure it? I'm sure you weren't like breaking into houses, but 
no, 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 nothing, nothing like nothing like that. It was like when you're a kid, you're you're taught, you know, the ideas of like what right, what wrong is, how to say please and thank you, you know, courtesy, what what knife, what fork to use, things like that. Because I lost my memories, I didn't, I don't remember any of those things. So I had to relearn those things at a much later date. So even though I was 16, I pretty much had the mentality of a six or seven year old. And, and that's what I meant. Like it wasn't, and my stepdad, again, kind of gave me, you know, very great values and, and structures that I still use as like rules to guide my life in a very, you know, positive way. But I didn't understand those things. And then and, and it was just more of an offhand comment than anything. When you went to France, what uh, is there a piece of art that you remember that really made you feel like, hey, this is you know, sending me a message or communicating to me in a way that's unique that I haven't seen before? Or was it just that that whole experience of, you know, a lot of people talk about how France really uh, affects how they how they see themselves and things of that nature. Was it just something that gradual? There was a Mark Rothko painting that I saw in, or a Mark, yeah, Mark Rothko painting in Grenoble. And and actually the, the, the image behind me is, is in, like the, the base of it is based off of a Rothko painting itself. But I fell in love with it. It was simple, but it was creative. And and I remember living in France, and it might sound weird to say this, but there was a moment where I was walking down a street and I felt at that particular moment that no one was thinking of me at all. And I just, I just, I just knew and I felt invisible. And that feeling gave me such, such a sense of, of purpose and meaning. And I don't know why, because it made me feel insignificant, but I felt so powerful in that moment as well. And I think that was like the, the creative outbringing of what France did for me was it made me kind of reform my identity. Um, and that's actually how I got the name Hugo, by the way. So I got the name Hugo living in France. And when I moved back home, I told my stepdad about it. And he's like, yeah, yeah, we won't tell your mom, but I'll call you Hugo. And then when he passed away, I actually started going by Hugo. At, like the day after he passed away, I started going by Hugo. And I was like, nope, that's it. Done. End of story. And then when my wife and I married, she's like, Hugo's going to be your first name now, not Daniel John, because you hate being called DJ. I'm like, I do hate being called DJ. I'm surprised you didn't go into music after that. Yeah, DJ Hugo Gatsby <laughs> would have been a great freaking name. <laughs> right. It's just so it's just overwhelmingly <laughs> epic. It was yeah, no. So I, I loved I loved every moment of of the France experience, but I think the art it's not one piece that I saw, it's just a feeling that I had, you know? And and I can't describe it more than that. It's just, I think if anybody ever has a chance to live in France, go. Just go to France. Live there. A week, a month, a year, I don't care, just go. I'm trying to like convince my wife to move back to France. Actually, my friend and I want to want to buy a place out there. So we're like, let's let's go buy a place in France and become like secret celebrities or something. I don't know. I don't know how it works out there, but we could figure it out. But you'll figure a way out. You'll figure something out. Um, so one thing you said was not being watched made you feel more power. I guess more give you an, uh, the opportunity to feel more free. I suppose if I'm going to summarize it right. So is that that is kind of weird, right? So. What, you know, people most, a lot of the time, I guess it is weird and isn't weird, right? But, you know, is there something about, is, do you find freedom in isolation? I, I think I'm a very isolated person to begin with. I think my brain is a very kind of solitude oriented place. It's, it's, it, it processes things at a very different pace. And I think, you know, I've always loved quantum physics. Even when I was in, I mean, even when I was a kid in school, like elementary school, I was working on projects of like, you know, space travel and like life on like, planets and moons and things like that and figuring out the probabilities. So I think when I think of that sense of isolation, it's, it's actually liberating. I think if you, if you can't be happy by yourself or love yourself, you can't 
love or be happy with anybody else. And, and for me, it was always a matter of understanding who I was. And I, and I still don't quite know that, but I try just about everything. And the way I relate to people is through experience. I'm, I'm terrible at communicating. I feel like I'm, I'm awkward, socially awkward. Just, you know, I have all these kind of negative qualities towards how I am with people. I'm very intense, I feel like. But if I can relate to people through some sort of experience, it builds a bridge. And I think that that's how I've, I've lived my life. But I've also been able to experience just about everything under the sun because I'm always trying to find something, some meaning in everything that I do, some purpose. And I always kind of feel like, you know, there's certain elements that relate to certain people that I've met. And it always makes me feel a little bit more connected to them, even if they don't know that. Well, in terms of communicating, I don't think you're doing too badly. Thanks. I, I actually really appreciate that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I guess speaking of building bridges, something that I wanted to point out is that the way, the way you started finding ways to express yourself is through technology and particularly through Photoshop. So I want to ask you how technology actually affected your uh, sort of, I guess, career generally, but how did that allow you to, you know, sort of move things forward? I, I can't have a meeting or interview about technology and not include rollerblades and the movie hackers from 1995 and i know friends of mine are watching this video they're going to laugh and roll their eyes because jesus you always bring a find a way to bring this up but i think you know i was in i was in grade eight when hackers came out and i had just gotten a 486 laptop or computer rather desktop and i got a 386 laptop right after the movie came out and i was in love with this language that was binary and I love to understand how things work. So I just like took it apart and rebuilt it, took it apart, rebuilt it. Um, I actually would um, splice phone line cables from all of my neighbors. So I'd have internet access at our house and be able to like get everybody else's passcode so I can get free internet from my family. We can still use our phone. And I was, I was really into the technology. I really loved the idea of meeting people that you never see. I loved the, I loved the internet, the early stages of it. Um, and even the early stages of social media, all that technology was just something that I was, scared of and excited for simultaneously. And if I had the people in my life who understood the technology that could have promoted me, I think I would have been in a much different place. But I, I did with it what I could and what I felt I needed to at the time. And I've always kind of went, I went to the art route, went to the design route, went to the business route, like, and now technology is all around us. And, and I feel somewhat comfortable, more comfortable than most. But I also worry is what my kids are going to be like when I'm 60 and they're in their 20s. And they're going to be like, yeah, dad, you don't understand these things. I'm like, I helped create these things, kid. Like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> well, speaking of business, te uh, technology, and sort of an art, can you talk to me about your experience rebranding the Hilton Hotels? Yeah, yeah. That was actually, a, that was a really fun project. So that was very early on in my career back um, when I was working in Vancouver. And they wanted to create more of a lifestyle branding. And this is my big forte into, into strategy development. So what they really wanted to do was, reconfigure their brand for a luxury brand, but also make it affordable. And what kind of came out of that whole process was what is now their kind of Hilton's point system. So what we saw was a lot of people will stay there, but if we reduce the price of staying overnight for certain people and increase the price for people who are willing to pay more to stay at the higher levels of the, of the buildings, people are more inclined to actually do that because there's a, there's a very clear definition between you know lower class and higher class income. And, and that was the kind of visual element of it. That's where the strategy came from. And then that, that middle ground was all of the clients that wanted to go on the point system that had some sort of benefit. And, you know, we got to stay at hotel, we got to stay at the Hilton hotels. We got to work with our team. We had some really fun experiences with it. 
the Hilton brand itself has just been super amazing. My wife is actually a Hilton member, um, which I found when like, I started dating her years later. And she's like, Hilton member. I'm like, oh, I love Hilton. She's like, I'm, I'm one of the Hilton members of this thing. I'm like, I helped create that. And she's like, okay, yeah, sure. And then I explained to her and she's like, oh, seriously? I'm like, yeah, yeah. So it was, it was a really fun experience. A lot of learning, a lot of mistakes along the way, I think. I think, you know, to grow, you need to, you need to be willing to try new things, but you need to be willing to fail and, and fail in a way that you can recover and improve. And I think that's that design thinking methodology. Um, I had that, you know, very early on in my life. I always thought I'm always, it's always going to be a little harder for me to do things just because of who I am, how I am. So I understood that. And although I get frustrated, I think when I see it through, I get a much bigger high of like, I was able to do this. I was able to like, you know, create something or build something or see something through that didn't exist before. And it was, it's nice to see where it is now and how it's kind of blossomed into this just epic um, world of, of travel and tourism. You know, I, I like to even dive even uh, sort of deeper into it. So because a lot of it is also leadership and some of the stuff you learned in military school mixed with all the things you already talked about. So, you know, it being a big project and a really difficult project, how did all those things intertwine? And what are some of the challenges you faced? Uh, you know, and because I'm seeing that you were able to cre- increase uh, sort of the value to over 15% at that time. And so how did that, you know, what are the different steps that uh, you were able to take or or retake that allowed you to sort of uh, to, to put it in this position? No, great question. Great question. I think one of the things for me was when I was in military school, I had this commanding officer and he gave me two really great pieces of advice. The first was lead by example. If you can't do the work, you can't expect people to follow your order. Uh, and the other one was teach others to leave and inspire them to stay. That is the single most important role of a leader. And it was actually during that time at that company where I understood that. And, you know, deadlines, everyone has deadlines that are almost impossible to meet. And I think during that project, there was a lot of deadlines, a lot of expectation. You know, we, we didn't budget the project correctly. We had so many late night, like work hours, people were getting burnt out. So I took kind of the burden and did a lot of the work myself, kind of pushing it forward, figuring things out, working on like forecast modeling, how like, and again, my brain worked in a different way so I could figure out these things just on the fly. But what ended up happening was the team saw that I was staying late every single night and there was this huge deadline. And I was like, all right, guys, have a great weekend. You know, we'll, we'll talk soon. I remember, you know, just wishing them a really good weekend. And they all, they all kind of sat at the door for a second and I'm just like running around. I was like, did anybody forget anything? Can I get you guys anything? And they're like, no, we're fine. And they just sat there. It was like lingering for like a good 10 seconds. And I thought it was weird. I was like, I got too much, I got too much stuff to do. And then they left and I was like working, working, working. And then all of a sudden the buzzer comes on and I open the door and it's the whole team with, with dinner. And they're like, we brought you dinner. I'm like, thanks. We're going to get this done tonight. And we stayed until like the early hours of the morning to get like that major project done. And it made me realize that I'm the kind of leader that inspired my team to stay. Cause I was always putting them first, putting their needs, putting their feelings first. We made the deadline. And then he came back with revisions, which again, was like a bit of a blow to us. But I was like, guys, like we did, we did the impossible and their feedback is only to make it better, but we did the impossible. So anything we do from this point on is a success. And they were like, yeah, that's a great mindset. And one person's like, stop being a Hallmark card. <laughs> it's like, I remember it's like, stop being a Hallmark card and let's just, let's just be angry for a second. I'm like, and then 
I actually went out and bought laser tag uh, sets for everybody. And then we, we play laser tag the next day to kind of like vent. And everyone's like, this is, this is hilarious. But that was, that was a single defining moment where I realized the kind of leader that I will be and that I am. But yeah, like that moment, that, like those moments, and that was what, 2009, 2008, 2009, around that time. Uh, and it still stays with me to this day. Like I still remember it clear as day. It's just been such a fun experience. Well, that's amazing. And I think, you know, one thing that's coming to me with this is that because uh, you've been in all these different kind of areas, right? You've been in places where you have to be very quantitatively sensitive at a high level and then very creative at a high level and sort of mix those things together and then also be in a business mindset. So, you know, with all those sort of all those experiences and, and things of that nature, uh, you know, what is now your concept of value? Because at least in the creative world, it's it's ephemeral, but um, at the same time, you know, with a with an understanding, with a quantitative mindset, you know, whether you apply it or not, you do have to think about it. So what is that? How does that evolve in your mind? How does that end up being uh, when you're thinking about outcomes? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Uh, so value to me is this equilibrium. And and there's always three sides to equilibrium. There's there's the client, there's you. And it's whoever the client is serving, which is technically their customer. Um, and it could be, it could take any type of shape. It could be, you know, uh, government helping, you know, cities or a company helping a particular customer or, you know, some sort of like software helping an education system, whatever. But everybody has to walk away winning equally. And I think that the challenge is everybody's always trying to come out for their, for a buck. Like everyone's trying to make as much profit as they can. And and I know I'll probably get like negative backlash, but I, I think I think profit's good to an extent. But I think there's a certain point where numbers don't make you any happier. And you know, when I was a, when I was in Harvard, I was able to go and do like some behavioral finance work, and I met some amazing profs. And we always had these discussions about what is what is happiness, what is the number for happiness, and it ended up being like a very small number. I think a range, it, 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 different conversations range from fifty thousand to about eighty thousand is the number that people need to be happy with, but. When I kept that in my mind, I was like, well, how does everybody walk away being happy? So when you work with a client, you want to make them happy and provide value, what that outcome is going to be. And, and your price should reflect that. But the price should also be something that you're happy with. And those two things have to deliver something to that, that customer, that client's customer that makes them happy. And if one of those parts aren't working, then everything falls apart. And, and I think that you know the unions in Germany specifically do a really good job with this, where Unions in Canada, not so great. Over in Europe, a little bit different. It's the organization, the government, and the union all have to work together. So if one person's not performing, let's say the company's not performing, the union goes to the government and they kind of gang up on the company saying, be better. If the government or if the union's not performing, the company goes to the government saying, like, let's help fix this union. The union has to fix up and they become better. Um, and, and I like that concept that everybody has to work together to succeed because that's really what it is. Everybody needs to equally feel value and not that they got cheated out. Now, if you consciously say this is the number that I want, but I'm willing to take a little bit less to make them happier, that's that's your prerogative. That still makes you happy. Cool. But I think when people shortchange themselves, and I did that for years, I would try to get a project by cutting my prices, cutting my prices. And it was just exhausting because, you know, at a certain point I was doing websites for five thousand dollars a pop. And the amount of work I had to do was insane. Um, and, and I ended up keeping a track of all of the problem clients. And I basically made what I called an ill-fit persona. 
So when I go into a project now and I and there's a certain kind of criterion of questions I ask myself, and if these, if these clients get to a certain threshold, I'm like, guys, unfortunately, I don't think we're going to be a great fit for each other. And this is the reasoning as to why. If you want, I'll help you find a person that is a better fit for you as uh, for like a client for, for working with. But I, I honestly don't think that it's me and I don't want to waste your time or my time. And, and people, I wish they would like that more than they do, but I think they get offended by that. And I think it's because I've, I've done, you know, over probably at this point in my life, 150, 200 projects. I, I know, I know what, I know what good looks like and I know what bad looks like. And, and I'm pretty good at picking out those between those two now. It's a hard thing to, you know, to pick out, obviously. We, you know, we, we kind of have the same thing where we try and be very careful with who we're, we're providing value for because, you know, I just to some degree don't know how to tone it down to give less because it's just not something that we do. So we try and be very careful with saying, hey, we're, we're doing this, but we're going to give you everything we have to make sure you're happy. But you have to, um, but it can be a take-take relationship because we are working together. Uh, your goal is our goal because, you know, we, we have the same place we want to reach, but we need to make sure that no one's losing out through this. And the only way we can really lose if, is if you don't give as much as uh, we're giving you. And... Uh, and we will t- do our part. We do everything to do our part. You guys have to do that on your side. Uh, and, and also, you know, and basically good faith is a very, very big part of that. Definitely want to work in good faith. And, and that way it makes it fun, right? Because when, when you, you know, just like the story you gave where there was uh, a bit of a few revisions here and there, but people sort of did, did all this work. We want to be in a position where if people are giving their all, they feel like that, uh, that prize at the end of that at the end of that journey is, is a real prize and it does go somewhere. So I understand where you're coming from completely. It's a big part. It's a big part of what we're trying to do as well. And it's funny because you talk about prizes, you know, gamification has been a big thing for my life. Like um, when I moved to the new city after like my kind of verbal kind of enlightenment, I became diabetic. So early on in my life, I had so many, you know, doctor's appointments and medical conditions and all these things I had to deal with. I started to gamify my life and saying, you know, like if I got to this certain point, if I control my blood sugars to this level, I would treat myself to this. Or if I was able to like, you know, make a new friend, I would, you know, do this as a way to celebrate and little, and I've gamified my life the whole way. And I think that reward system is very, very incentivizing for people to do things. And it's not just giving them gifts and things, but making people feel important, giving them a challenge, being a mentor, being a guide. And I think, you know, those, those elements of gamification, everybody, everybody uses gamification but I don't think people know it. And, and that's one of the things that I absolutely love when I bring it to the table and I say, you know, we're going to look at your strategy. I'm going to break it down into like gamification approach. Oh, well, we didn't use gamification. It's like, we don't, we don't play games in our organization. It's like, it's not games. Gamification is a scientific process of how you actually, you know, quantitatively reach milestones. And you're already doing that. Give, and, and I usually give them analysis and I'll say, you know, I'll, I'll do a free analysis if I need to to kind of like show them what it, what's happening. It's like, this is why it's working. This is why it's not working. You have, you know, eight tactics you're using out of like the 64 that I have, but eight of them are all in like one category, but there's eight different categories. So you're missing seven different categories. And if you just include one thing from each of those other categories, you're going to change the way that your organization works. And I love, I love repurposing old technology and old tools. You know, I've worked for, banks and telecoms and media companies. And they're always using super old technology. Like I remember we were working for Bell and I think, I think we were running on 
um, Office 2000 and whatever it was, 2008, 2000, something like that. One of the older versions before they went to like 365. But it was like two or two generations before 365. So they couldn't even just upgrade to 365. And I had to make everything work with them. And I'm like, this is a nightmare. But I, I figured it out and kind of made it work because that's what they had available to them. They didn't want to use new technologies to make their job easier. And even though I said it to them, you, you can't you can't move a mountain with a, with a voice. Um, so I just had to slowly make my way to the top of it and then get it, show everything done there. And it's like, now to make it better, we can do this other thing. And, and we're already at a point where once we transfer over to two generations up, this stuff will still be pliable in that new system because of the way the architecture that I, I made with it. Uh, and it was just like, you know, uh, a, a rabbit hole of, of, um, you know, research and, and blogs and things that I talked to and communities that I talked to about people, uh, Reddit posts and things like that. So I was able, yeah, lots and lots of, lots of, lots of relationships, lots of, I mean, if people think nepotism doesn't exist, they're wrong. It is, you know, the, the nicer you are to people, it, it's exactly it. And that's how the world works. Like the nicer you are to people, they're going to be like, they're going to return that favor in kind. Uh, and, and that's how the world works. And it should work because if you're not willing to take the time to be nice to other people, why should they be nice to you? That's how I look at it. I think that's really important. And I think even when we're talking about gamification, we're talking about people, a big part of that, some of the things we see is, hey, you know, everybody has their own way of rewarding themselves and seeing what is a reward to them. And a lot of what it means to, you know, because we are definitely trying to build projects and we're definitely trying to, you know, bring people together to bring that. And, and our, you know, our capital is the quality of the people. And a lot of that is, you know, structuring things is in a way where each individual's perspective of themselves is attached to that project, but also the way that they are rewarding themselves. So some people want to do a lot of work, regardless of the creativity. Some people are only happy because they did something new. And how do you, you know, structure the way that the outcomes of that project, how do you structure the outcomes of that project and the pieces of work in that project? So each individual is rewarded all the way to the, to the finish line, right? And then there's the opportunity for gamification all the way up and down this, you know, the uh, sort of the ladder of contribution and a big part of, you know, uh, leading a team towards an endeavor is, is is making sure that you slice it as well as you can, right? And people's goals change over time and perspectives of themselves change over time. Um, but, you know, being able to, you know, essentially make it modular, make it personable uh, and make it fun as the, the you know, sort of the idea of a game implies um, is, is a big part of, uh, some of how we, we see things, right, in terms of, you know, pushing things forward for our clients and, and pushing things forward for our teams as well. I love that. I absolutely love that. Um, and, and I wholeheartedly agree. And, and you're right, like that evolutionary state is, is part of that gamification approach. I think the challenge is leadership. I think a lot of organizations suffer from, I don't want to say poor leadership or poor management, but I think it's more management than it is leadership. And I think, you know, the role of a leader is to understand how your team is going to perform and change your style to to accommodate those people. They don't have to change their style to accommodate the leader. I don't think that's how, and I think that's one of the major problems in a lot of large organizations today. I mean, you can go to any, you know, any hospital, any bank, any, you know, big telecom, any of those larger, big corporations, and you'll see, you know, a lot of negativity in, in the staff, but they're always winning awards for best places to work. And, and that's part of the, you know, the pay, the pay to pay play system. But if we just took time to focus on what people need and deliver that to them, you know, 
there's some there's some really great research coming out of England right now where a four day work week, like 32 hours a week, is creating slightly larger revenue, but a, a vast different, a vast decrease in depression and burnout and all these other elements. And you're still you're still making more money, but people are way happier. And you're making a little bit more money, but are you like is the company happy to make you know a 1.5 increase in revenue while also seeing a 75% decrease in burnout? I I would I would wholeheartedly jump behind that. And I think people's mentalities mentalities have to shift. And I think this is the generation, like the, the current generation is gonna be the one that really sees this through. And it's not about working less, it's about working smarter, working more efficiently. And you know, AI technology is really great. I've adopted it into a lot of the work that I do um, just because I don't want to fall behind. I don't want my kids to be like, Dad, you're so old. <laughs> like I think of my conversations with my dad. If I need to convince if I need to convince anybody of anything. I go to my dad, like my, 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 real, my real dad, and I try to convince him on how I'm going to work something. And if I can convince him, because he's the most stubborn old school person I can think of, I know that everybody else is going to be, he, he's the official guinea pig for my, my, especially when I was working at the bank. Yeah, he is, he is that guy. He's, he's, he's my guy to go to, to, to convince. And if I can convince him, I can convince anyone. And I think his 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 relationship with me is always to disagree with me. Like that that's basically it. His life is to disagree with me on everything. So I'm assuming you learned a lot of that leadership stuff, uh, and specifically the leadership stuff about leading by example from the, the military school that you had. And you did say that. So uh, you know, one thing I always ask the people who come on this the sort of podcast is, you know, how do you scale your you know your perspective on leadership? So you know, you have 500 people. And they can't all see you and they can't see all, all see the example you're giving because you are only so much, no matter how productive you are as, as an individual. So how do you how do you push that down an organization? Right. How did you get to the top of that mountain? And what is it that cascaded down to the bottom that uh, enabled that organization you just talked about to change since it couldn't be you per se? That's a great question. And, and I'll, I'll start it with. That first year I was in military school, I went to the Royal Military College when I was 14 and it was, it was, it was grueling. And I thought I was, I literally thought I was going to die because I just couldn't get through it. And I got through it. But at the end, the officer came up to my stepdad and my mom's boyfriend at the time, but said, you have a really amazing son here. He's like, I know. He's like, no, I, I think you need to like, you really, and seeing the look in his eye, like he wasn't, he didn't see anything that I did. But he had that sense of pride in him. And I think that moment to me made me so emotional. But it also made me realize that when you're a leader, people don't need to see you to feel your, your impact, feel your impression. So when you're talking about scale, I think you need to understand what is going to make people feel challenged and safe simultaneously. And I think everyone's always fearful, you know, with recessions and things like that. They're always fearful about money. Money is the most important thing to people. And I don't think it should be. And here's the reasoning why. Because you can make $100,000, $200,000, $400,000. Your life doesn't change. You still worry about bills. You still worry about all, like, all the different things. And, and I'm speaking from experience. Like, I still worry about the same things, no matter how much money I make. And if money is the way that I look at my happiness... I have to continuously make more and more and more to be happier doesn't make a lot of sense. So you need to find other things that drive them. And, and as a leader, you need to find what's going to drive people. That sense of security is really important. That sense of achievement, that challenge. 
how can you scale that is is really a, a combination of who's working who's working with you and what are their reasonings for working and that's where my work in behavioral science behavioral finance comes into play is understanding what those motivations are and understanding how they receive information how you communicate to them what types of biases they have and then you can start to placate to those, those certain pieces now I think a lot of times it's a choose your own adventure methodology because that's worked for me. It doesn't work for everybody. So in a situation when I become a leader of, you know, I haven't had the opportunity to become a leader of 500 people yet, but I was literally having that conversation yesterday with somebody. Um, but it pops into my head. It's like, how will I be able to create a culture that is sustainable? And I think that's where the idea comes into play, like inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility, like all those elements need to tie together because everybody is amazing and, and creative and wonderful and in their own right, you need to find what their potential is and, and help them see that potential in themselves. And when you do, it's, it's going to change something for the better. And you just need to figure out how to evolve with that. It's, there's a person, a really bad business partner I had actually, but he gave me really great advice at one point, but his goal was when he's building his brand or his company or his idea, he can either have a person who's going to challenge it and grow and leave that organization, or he can grow their organization to fit that idea as well. So they always stay together and they always grow. And that kind of reminded me of my, my military days where it was like, you know, uh, inspire people to stay. And you're growing your purpose, your idea to include what they want to do because you're invested in them. And if you could find a way of doing that um, with a lot of people, which sounds like it's hard but it really isn't because everyone has a purpose and a reason just got to figure out how to get them to communicate that how to get them to trust you and that trust and relationship is really important so i've i've ways that i would do it but i haven't come to that state in my life yet probably in the next five years i'd say maybe but until then i'm just just hustling like everybody else <laughs> well i think you have a good start I, I, or a good baseline i think this idea of safety and challenge is really important because I think, you know, it's actually just sort of, I'm going to make an assumption here, even just how children like, you know, feel or grow in general, you make, you make them safe, but you have to challenge them. And if you can create, and it's very tough to create in a, in the, in a business environment for all kinds of reasons, but if you can't create it, I mean, that is the baseline with which anybody can grow. And I think, you know, you know, good luck on the journey of, of making that uh, happen with sort of how you're doing things. But uh, I think that's, I think that those axioms are, it's hard to make them, uh, if you can make them happen, it's hard for them to fail. So I think that's a great, I think that's, that's something I took from that. And I, and I think it's really valuable. I think I, I even had an experience once with, uh, there was a, a much younger engineer It's very, very smart, very smart. And uh, I, there are some um, wheels that allow, allowed him to reinvent just because it uh, allowed him to feel creative. And he'd made some really cool things. And, uh, you know, it created a baseline for, for, for some other things that we, uh, we were able to, to leverage within that, that project. And um, I think that safety, I, I didn't want to kill that, that spark of creativity he had. I didn't want to say, oh, there's, an, there's something else that exists already because he was able to still deliver that thing, uh, even though we had it before and that, uh, and, and uh, give him that confidence to, to continue to do it and sort of trade for, okay, here's your piece, here's our piece, here's your piece, here's our piece. I mean, and that, honestly, you know, when other people saw what was made, they were like, this is, this is quite some in, some engineering you've, you've done here. So, um, you know, I, I really resonate with that idea of feeling safe, feeling secure in, in, 
in where you are and wh what uh, someone is creating for you, that space, but also feeling challenged like, okay, but you do have to deliver here though, but we, we are all on your side. One of the questions I have here, you've alluded to it a little bit is, what is a behavioral strategist? It sounds very airy-fairy, but I think, uh, I think, you know, with all the things you've talked about already, I think it does have quite, have quite a bit of substance to it. Yeah, no, um, great, great question. So a behavioral strategist works on the concepts of um, what we call cognitive bias. So you make, you know, tens of thousands of decisions a day. 95% of them are automated. So you don't even think about them. And, and that's where those biases come in. And about 5% of what you think about is actually decisions you actively make. So one of the roles that we have is if decisions are made kind of by the hip and instantaneously, how do we influence that for people to make better decisions? And it's not brainwashing and telling them to make a decision this way, but it's, it's showing them kind of an architecture so they, they think about the decision, make a more educated decision and make better decisions. Uh, and a great example is, you know, when I was working with the Bank of Montreal, uh, I led actually, I brought in behavioral science into their organization and helped implement it into the digital adoption strategy. So people going on to mobile banking. So a lot of people who are, you know, older, they have a much older kind of average median of customer in their like mid to late 50s. So how do you get those people to want to use digital banking as opposed to going into the bank? So we had to go through a series of, of you know, tests and research and experiments to see what was working and different ways of incentivizing them, different ways of gamifying it. And gamification has a lot of elements from behavioral science, a lot of biases. So we tried to figure out what are some of those major blockers and how do we overcome them or circumvent them with getting the decision to be made faster, more efficiently, and proactively more beneficial to that individual. You know, a lot of those 401k plans you see or when organizations offer you know, um, matching for RSP contributions, things like that. That's all behavioral science at play. And those are all really great examples of how you're making their lives better. Now, they won't see it immediately, but 10, 15, 20 years down the road, when they're retiring, they're like, wow, where did I make all this money? It's like, it's because this company used behavioral science on you to influence you. Now, there's there's also levels of motivation and and there's different, you know, theories of thought. So I don't want to go into what I prescribe to, but um, it adapts depending on the situation. And, and I like the concept of intrinsic and ex extrinsic motivation and how those influences will impact either individuals or kind of organizations or groups of organizations. Um, and, and those pieces then help you kind of filter down to what biases are prevalent in those types of people. You talk about intrinsic, intrinsic and ex extrinsic. Is there a stark difference between those? But more more important, interesting to me is like, is there are there motivations that groups have that individuals don't, and vice versa, where uh, that's stark enough that's interesting? Yep, hundred percent. So there, there's always outliers, and I think um, like intrinsic motivators are things that like motivate you internally. So you know, like a sense of a sense of purpose, a sense of a sense of belonging. But then extrinsic motivators will motivate you externally. So also that sense of belonging, though it's internal it's also can be an external motivator. So it's not that they're one or the other. They sometimes kind of cover both areas. Now they, they differ in the way that that motivation works. So you need to understand, like I like to understand how that motivation works and how it works as a group because take consultants, for example, you know, consultants primarily want to win. Achievement is a really big thing. Uh, but then there's smaller pockets of groups where they want a sense of security or they want, you know, a sense of prestige or esteem. And then the different tiers of consulting firms offer 
different types of motivators for that. So you understand how to get those people to do things you want within an organization. And it's not just salary focused. A lot of it is, you know, challenge focus and purpose focus and, you know, things that people can't explain, like a difficult thing that someone can't like solve, you're being given that project. A lot of people will be intimidated by that, but certain people will just absolutely love it. They're like, great, if I can solve this and no one else has done this, I'll feel better than everyone else. Um, and, and, and that works a lot. I think, you know, the eighties definitely made consultants have this sense of win at all costs, same with investment bankers. Um, but I think over the years that that's starting, that's starting to change. And I really like how that change is happening. And Deloitte's a great example of how that change is, is happening for the better. There's a lot of really great, uh, experiences of people that I've met at the firm, uh, that even if I were to leave one day, which I have no intention of, um, but if I did, there'd be, you know, a good dozen people that I would still talk to. Uh, to this day. So uh, you, you talked a lot about uh, behavioral strategy and you talked about the motivators, right? So people are motivated by different things, not necessarily always uh, sort of uh, compensation based. It's not always about money, right? Um, so to me, I was thinking, okay, so the ones that weren't based on money, um, the most stark place to, uh, to apply those would be a military school because the expectations are high, right? But there is no compensation especially in a military school, there's literally no compensation that has to do with money. But they are able to motivate people to quite a degree, even for yourself, even though you felt like you had a few challenges here and there. So, you know, you could sort of, if you were to able to apply what you've learned so far to how military school was able to affect you positively, what would those things have been? To know that I couldn't do something and then to see, you know, two months later that I was able to do it shows me a sense of, perseverance and determination. And I think, you know, perseverance, it, it, like I, I could probably outstare a mountain uh, with like my determination. Uh, and then I think my wife could tell you, like, sometimes I will say something and she'll think it's like just a, like a half-assed joke. And then she'll realize that it, it's, it's fruition. I'm like, I said this to you. And she's like, I thought you were being sarcastic. I am not sarcastic. Like, I understand this, but this is also something that would never actually real ha- happen in real life. And I think that military school taught me that, you know, I, I try to be as honest as possible. And when I say something, I, I say it to put it out in the universe. And when I say it, I know that I will do it because I'm not, I don't want to let myself down. Um, I've been let down by a lot of people in my life. So I don't want to be that person to others. and I don't want to be that person to myself. And I want my kids, you know, to see that and say, our dad, said what he was going to do and did everything he could to make everybody's lives better, not just our own. And, and I want to make sure that, and those are things that I saw in military school. You know, you don't get, you can't do it by yourself. You, you can't be successful by yourself. You need to have somebody, something. And I think that is the part of camaraderie that I, that I appreciate. And there's a, there's a handful of people that I talk to on a weekly basis and, you know, we work together, we do things together, we have projects together, we have side projects together, we have ambitions together, you know, everything from building an industry that doesn't exist to buying a castle. Like, these are all the conversations I have with people. Um, and, and full length, like, not like, oh, let's do this to be fun. It's like, no, here's a 15-year strategy, here's a 15-year plan, this is what we're going to do. And it, it, it keeps us engaged, and it keeps us looking towards the same goal. Now, if that goal changes, totally fine. But it's a conversation we have together and not a conversation you have by yourself. I think solitude is one thing for creativity and understanding and, and reflection and self-purpose and self-worth. But there's a sense of relationship that you need 
and everybody's lives somehow. And I think, you know, going through depression and some of my darker years of my late twenties, early thirties, um, I really wished I had some, I was more open to people. And it was after some of those experiences where I started to talk about my autism openly and started to understand who I was. And that's where my life really took off. Like in five years, between 35 and 40, that, that version of Hugo, if you would have told me when I was 20 that that's who I was going to be, I would not have believed you in the slightest at all. Remote, two completely different people. Um, but still, they're very much the same person. Thinks the same, acts the same, still reads the same comic books, all that same kind of stuff. But listen to the same music. Uh, maybe my musical tastes have kind of increased over the years. But um, yeah, that, that's the thing. Like you need, you need people in your life to help push you forward. Um, and you do the same to them. Well, if someone was if someone was determined to find you, uh, either for camaraderie, for productivity, or uh, to reach a goal, where would they be able to do that? I mean, I have I have so many sites that I run. I would say reach out to me on reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, I think LinkedIn is the, is the best place. I get I get a lot of messages every week, but a lot of them are just you know buy my thing off me, buy my thing off me. And I've had you know maybe a half dozen people a year that reach out to me genuinely. And all those people I still talk to and all those people are really amazing. And if you want to reach out to me, talk to me, we can work together. We can just have a chat. You know, that's the best place to do it, to get in touch with me. And then from there, we can figure out where we go. I think it's always an adventure. So yeah, choose your own adventure at that point. Thank you so much. Welcome to the RH Podcast. We talk about business, software, and everything in between. Visit us at www.recursive.house where we build software for large and small businesses.